0: We will be continuing our walk through Nehemiah in chapter 5 today. Nehemiah chapter 5, and the title of the message is Protecting the Unity of God's People. The last several weeks we've been walking through Nehemiah and we've seen that Nehemiah is a tremendous uh, book and a tremendous account of what was happening for Nehemiah Israel, the people of God, as they were, ter- were returning from being in exile, and so it's known as post-exilic time, the people are returning to Jerusalem and working to rebuild the wall. The temple has already been rebuilt, and they're, as they're working to rebuild the wall, there was a, a threat looming that was threatening. It was threatening to stop the advancement of God's work, God's kingdom work. And that threat came from the outside surrounding nations. They wanted to stop God's people from rebuilding the wall. And so they came in chapter 4. The two men, Tobiah and Sanballat, came. They came ridiculing and mocking and even threatening physical harm to God's people. Nehemiah responded with prayer. A prayer of faith and a prayer of action. Chapter 4, verse 9, he said, So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And then he followed in verse 14 of chapter 4 with a charge. And the charge was, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. And then in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 4, Nehemiah tells us of God's faithfulness toward his people he frustrated the plans of their enemies who were coming to attack them. And so in verse 17 of chapter 4, the people resumed their work on the wall. And we read of weapons being carried in one hand and loads carrying supplies in the other hand as they were guarding and, and working to put their faith in action, trusting in God and holding their swords. If you remember last week, we said as Oliver Cromwell told his, uh, his, his military men, he said, trust in God and keep your powder dry. And so here's what the people of Israel are doing. They're trusting in God. They're carrying the swords. They're putting faith in action, working together. Verse 18 of chapter 4, we read, And each of the builders had a sword strapped to his side while they built And then in verse 20 of chapter 4, he said, Our God will fight for us. If you hear the horn, it's the rally cry. Come together and our God will fight for us. So the outward attacks of the enemy were foiled. They were frustrated. But there was an inward attack that came to God's people. You see, when the outward attack of the enemies failed, When they fail to stop the work of God through his people, oftentimes the enemy then will resort to friendly fire tactics or or attacks from within. We saw this for the people of Israel when Moses was leading them out of Egypt and, and bondage to slavery. They get in the wilderness and the people begin to grumble and complain and murmur, and within themselves they were they were bickering and fighting. We see it in Acts chapter 6, as the Holy Spirit is doing a great work saving many in the midst of, of, of Pentecost and proclaiming the gospel after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Chapter 6, as the church was growing exponentially, there arose a complaint in the midst of the widows, the Hebrew Jews versus the Hebrew widows versus the Hellenistic widows in the daily portion of food and There was a grumbling and a complaining that arose. And so often, this is the way the enemy works. When opposition fails to confront and to stop the work of God and the gospel progressing, the enemy then begins to work inwardly, to work in the midst of the community. In chapter 5, we learn that while the walls may stop the enemy from without, they don't guard against the corruption of man's heart within. And so there's an internal threat looming. And this internal threat is against the community's unity. And what we need to see in this text is the unity, the the community's unity, and, and this looming threat, this internal threat, can just as easily stifle the advancement of God's kingdom work through his people. When there is disunity, the advancement of God's kingdom work will be stifled. When there's disunity within the church... The advancement of the gospel ministry through that church is it's going to be stifled. And so this morning, I want us to see that living to advance our own agendas will threaten the unity of the church for advancing Christ's work in the world. Before we read the text, let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning. It is our humble Prayer that you would teach us and instruct us through your word. Lord, make our hearts open and sensitive to the truth of your word. Let us learn, Father, from from Nehemiah in chapter 5 and what happened in the life of your people and what happened in history for the people of God as they were working and endeavoring to to do this great act of unity and rebuilding the wall, yet internally there was disunity among them. Lord, may we learn, may you instruct our hearts, may you speak to us in very personal ways, but also in a corporate way as a, as a body of Christ. Lord, you know, the, you know the things that we as a congregation are struggling with. You know the things we are seeking to discern. You know the personal aspects of our very personal lives and the internal struggles that each of us have, even in our own hearts. And so, God, we, 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 we say this morning that we are open. Please speak to us. Teach us, instruct us through your word. Open our minds to understand the truth of your word and our hearts to love the truth of your words and give us strength, Father, to apply your word into our lives and to live it faithfully. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In chapter 5, I want to begin reading in verse 1. We've set the stage and we understand what's going on in the midst of the community. There's a struggle internally for unity. And in verse 1, Nehemiah writes, Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And in verse 6, I was very angry, Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Our enemies. We'll pause there. In verses 1 through 9, we see the threat that really is coming against God's people. And the issue that Nehemiah is struggling with deeply here is that the people are not walking and exercising. They're not living in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of their God. And so the situation is this. Nehemiah hears the great outcry and deep distress of the people. In verse 1, he says, Now there arose a great outcry in the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. The language is reminiscent of the exilic language that we read in 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 uh, or even of, of the Exodus when, when the people are coming out of out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. When they were in slavery, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 3, verse 7, it tells us that God. Heard their cry, and he sent one to deliver. He sent Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage. And so we see in verse six that Nehemiah hears their cry, and he's greatly angered over the rift in the community. In verses two through four, we we learn that there are really three groups of people who are suffering. The first group, in verse two, we we see their families who who are quite large, but they're poor. They don't own any land. In fact, they have to hire themselves out just to get enough grain to feed their families. And so when it came time to feed their families, there was no food. Why? Because the men had been working on the wall. They had been repairing and rebuilding the wall. In verse 3, there, there's another group, the landowners, the farmers, who, who were having, having to mortgage their property to buy grain to stay alive. They were busy working on the wall too, and and they couldn't harvest the fields. They couldn't work the fields in order to produce enough grain, in order to pay, and in order to feed themselves. And so what they have to do is to go and they have to mortgage their fields and their property in order to buy food to feed their families. Then verse 4, there were farmers who were having to borrow money to pay the royal tax. They, They were able to... To, they were maybe in a little bit better position. They were able to live off of what they had produced on their land. But, but still they had to pay taxes on their land, the king's royal tax. And they couldn't make those payments because they didn't have enough money. Uh, they didn't have enough grain or food to sell at market and also to feed their families. And so they have to borrow money from their brothers. In an agrarian society, one's land was the primary source of income. And so verse five really clues us in to, to really the unthinkable choice that these men and women these parents were having, having to make. They were faced with either losing their land and their livelihood or using their children as collateral to pay off the creditors. And so the complaint in verse five rises. Are we any different? Are we indifferent from our brothers, right? He says there in verse 5, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children. I mean, we're brothers in community here, yet it doesn't feel like it. Our children play with theirs. We're we're really no different. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. The word that he uses here for slaves in verse 5, the first one, it's the normal word for slaves in the Hebrew language. It means slave or servant. But notice in the second part of verse 5. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. This is a different word for slavery. In fact, when this word is used in connection with daughters, it's suggesting, to put it nicely, they were becoming second wives to some of these men in the Jewish community. Their daughters were being forced into these circumstances. And they're saying our daughters are being humiliated and there's nothing we can do to stop it. We've been put in this position where we're out sacrificing, working on the wall, working together for the unity of God's people to make this work happen. And back home, our sons and our daughters are having to be put into slavery in order to keep our land, in order for our family to even survive. So it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields, they say in verse Five. And so the worst part about all this is it's not some oppression that's coming from outside nations. As when the Babylonians took over and ransacked Jerusalem. No, the worst part about this is it's coming from our brothers. In verse one. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For a nation that was to live on brotherhood and unity. This was horrible. The implications of of the threat were many. The people who were suffering the most consisted of the majority of the people who were working on the wall. The poor weren't able to work the land to provide for themselves. The work on the wall was going to suffer if they left in order to go and to work on the land. The mounting financial burden of mortgaging fields to pay the king's tax was overwhelming. On top of that, they were experiencing the devastation of selling their children into slavery. And there was great concern over the compromised position of of their children, their vulnerable children, especially their daughters being enslaved to others. These things should not be among the community of God's people. You see, here's the reality. A work that, that takes the whole community of God's people Demands the whole community to shoulder one another's burdens. We've already seen that in chapter four, chapter three. But instead, the people of Jewish, the Jewish people of wealth were concerned with themselves and and not for their brothers. They were only concerned with selfish means and making a buck and profiting their own lives. Question I'd ask us to consider this morning or what are some of the present day dangers threatening the unity of God's people. What threatens the advancement of God's kingdom through His church today? Yet there are those obvious things: the the the, the gossip and the slander and selfishness and pride. But I want to give you three suggestions that I think are evidenced in this text that we can see this morning that are very practical and very applicable. Listen, this text isn't so far divorced from our circumstances. They're paying taxes. They're having to provide for their families with food. They have mortgages to pay. And all the while, they're trying to live in community, covenant community, in fellowship with the body. And so the the, the first present-day danger that I want to highlight for you that I think comes from the text this morning is the presence of spiritual complacency. We'll see this in a moment more in the the second point this morning. But the presence of spiritual complacency is a danger that threatens the unity of God's people. Why? Because when our hearts are cold to the work of Christ and our salvation, we need to ask the hard questions. Am, am, Am I harboring sin in my life? If so, we need to pray with the psalmist. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see when our hearts are cold toward the things of God. We won't be enthusiastic about living the gospel. Nor will we engage in living out the gospel. We can't fake gospel transformation in our lives. And the truth is, God desires to use his people, his church in reaching the lost world for Christ. That which we have already been singing about this morning. Spiritual complacency doesn't endear us to one another. It doesn't cause us to want to to see the good of others for Christ's sake. In fact, spiritual complacency makes us apathetic to Christ's mission in the world. So what's the answer? Seeking God through prayer. Reading his word. Being in accountable relationships with others. Living in community with God's people, not forsaking the worship assembly of God's people, gathering together as God's people to worship him and to glorify him. That's the answer to spiritual complacency in our lives. Trusting God, living in the fear of the Lord. Second observation or the second present day danger that's threatening the unity of God's people is the absence of physical service. You see, even if they would have left the wall to go and tend to their families, then the wall, the work on the wall, and that unity in, in God's mission wouldn't have wouldn't have been fulfilled. They they wouldn't have been able to complete all the work that needed to be done in the time in which they were trying to do it. And so the absence of physical service, as we've seen from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, right? Use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. In other words, God has gifted his people to be serving one another within the body. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Ephesians 4, 12 through 13. The saints are to be equipped for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain, listen, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The question, are we using our gifts in service to the body, in service to one another? Are we being good stewards of the gifts which God has entrusted to us? So we see the presence of spiritual complacency is a a present-day danger threatening the unity of God's people. The absence of physical service is a a present-day danger threatening the unity of God's people. But thirdly, we see a a lack of financial participation is a present-day danger threatening the unity of God's people. I'm not just throwing this one in here this morning to include something about finances. This passage, chapter 5, is all about finances. It's all about how we use our finances for the glory of God. How we take what God has given us and we steward it for His glory. So it's specific to our text this morning and it's relevant to our fellowship. We see the great need in this text for financial responsibility and that responsibility is in supporting the community's work of advancing God's kingdom. And so everyone in the community is called to do their part and to carry out their part. And one challenge of the passage is economic integrity and justice. We are to have economic and integrity and, and justice in how we use even the funds and the resources financially that God has given us. So here's the point when we don't faithfully steward our gifts from God in the midst of the body of Christ, the ministry and the mission of the church will suffer. I hope we see that this morning. And I hope we see the way that God wants to use each of us in advancing the work of the gospel, from the places we work to to the schools and the classrooms that we sit in, to the campuses that we live on and walk on in every walk of life. We each have a vital role to play in the ministry of the church moving forward in this city and the gospel being proclaimed in this city and to the nations. Secondly, this morning in, in verses six through nine, Nehemiah confronts business as usual. He confronts business as usual. The, the wealthier Jews were really living with a detached faith. And that becomes evident even as we we saw in verse nine. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, You know what Nehemiah is saying here? He has a zeal and a passion for the name of God to be glorified among the nations, not for the name of God to be taunted and ridiculed and made fun of in the midst of the people of God. The fear of the Lord must govern our daily living. What's happening here? The nobles and the officials of the community aren't living according to God's design for his people. They're breaking God's covenant and and putting the whole work at stake. And so Nehemiah charges them with breaking the law of Moses, the Torah, and exacting interest in verse 7 from their brothers, which was explicitly forbidden in the Torah in Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23. And so how does Nehemiah confront the issue? In verses 6 and 7, there's kind of an interesting phrasing You've read it. I was very angry, he says, when I heard their outcry and these words. In verse 7, he says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I think we learn a very important leadership lesson from Nehemiah, just a real practical leadership lesson. He says, I was very angry and I took counsel with myself. In other words, what he's saying is, I paused. And I didn't allow my anger to overcome me. I didn't allow my anger to lead me into sin. He didn't speak until God had ruled his heart in the matter. That's very important. Many of us, if not most of us, will do well to hear Nehemiah's words. And in the moments of our anger, to allow our hearts to first be Ruled by God before lashing out at others. So often, right, we speak before we think. We speak and then we thought, think, oh man, I, I shouldn't have said that. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we fly off the handle at, at work or, or in other public places and we really put our witness on display, don't we? But it's the wrong kind of witness. In fact, that would be the same kind of witness that That the officials and the nobles were putting on display before the nations. You know, if we're honest, most often it happens with those who are closest to us. It happens with those who are who are in our families. One writer in the New York Times wrote, getting angry can sometimes be like leaping into a wonderfully responsive sports car, gunning the motor, taking off at a high speed and then discovering the brakes don't work. The. Early 20th century evangelist Billy Sunday had a woman that came to him one time and she was trying to justify her angry outbursts. And she said, There's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up and then it's all over. And he replies to her, Ma'am, so does a shotgun. And look at the damage that it leaves behind. You know, that's the reality. Church, we must be a people that bring our anger under submission and and allow our hearts to be mastered by Christ before we speak out and and lash out in anger and and throw up all over someone. You see, the one whose heart has been mastered by God is the one whose tongue won't get him in trouble. you ever experienced that? It was Benjamin Franklin who said, anger is never without reason, but seldom with a good one. Nehemiah had a good reason to be angry. He was zealous for God's name to be exalted among the nations, not defamed. But first, God had to master his heart. And then in verse 8, their silence was an indictment of, of, of their guilt. Verse 8 tells us of the hypocrisy of their actions. While Nehemiah had bought back the Jewish slaves from the nations, what were these officials and nobles doing? They were selling them to the nations in order that Nehemiah would have to buy them back again. They were all about making their own profit. So what drives all of this for Nehemiah? Listen, what drives this for Nehemiah is realizing the realization that that they're not living in the fear of the Lord. Their hearts hadn't really changed. They were looking out for the good of the community. They weren't looking out for the good of the community Instead, they were looking out for their own interests, for their own good. They were oppressing and exploiting the poor. The real question was, how is this any different from the nations that were surrounding them? You see, God desired his people to be a, a witness to the nations. The fear of the Lord wasn't governing their daily living. They weren't walking under the commandments of God. And so there was a detachment between their faith and their actions. And consequently, they were poised to defame God's name among the nations, to bring dishonor on God's covenant people. And here's Nehemiah's point. Nehemiah's point is that the character of the community reflects that of God. Crosspoint, the character of this community reflects that of God reflects that of our Savior. Nehemiah was concerned for God's name among the nations. The question I have for us is, does the character of our community reflect that of God? What does it mean for the church today to walk in the fear of the Lord? Is it our passion and our desire for God's name to be exalted among the nations, among those who who we interact with daily in our lives? Are we passionate about that? In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 39, Jesus says the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In John 13, 34 and 35, he's talking to his disciples and he tells them, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Believer, do you have a detached faith this morning? Are you concerned with walking in the fear of the Lord? Are, are you loving God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Do we fear God in the way that we deal with our, with our money, with our finances, in the way that we help out our brothers, our sisters? Do we have a concern for God's reputation among the nations? Is that that something that's passionate on our hearts? Finally, this morning, I want you to see that the nobles and the officials respond with repentance, which leads to restoration. So Nehemiah charges them and says, The thing you're doing is not right. And in verses, really, verses 10 through 19 10 through 13, we see this response and this call to response. Nehemiah says, moreover, in verse 10, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interests. I don't think that means that Nehemiah was culpable in in taking interest unjustly from the poor of the community. I think Nehemiah is simply saying here, let us not take any interest. And he's calling the people. He's saying, I've been lending But let us not expect interest from the lending that we've been giving. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards. And so we see that Nehemiah calls for the abandoning and the exacting of interests from their brothers. I think we can learn that the community's unity around rebuilding the wall didn't remove the internal struggles of the people's hearts. In fact, it it actually revealed areas of inconsistency between their faith and their actions, and it it allowed for an occasion for impure motives of their hearts to surface. Similarly, we learn that corporate unity and working to advance the gospel of Christ doesn't remove the impurity of our own hearts before God. What removes these obstacles to unity is confession before God and, and true repentance. So in verse 11, Nehemiah calls for the return of all that belongs to the people. In verses 12 and 13, the nobles and the officials agreed. They said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. And so Nehemiah calls the priests and he, before them, and he enacts this covenant between the priests and the people before God. And he calls them to make a promise and to stand on it. And it says that all the assembly said, in verse 13, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. You see, there was repentance from the people, and then they were restored to the unity of the community. You know, the good news, church, is when we repent of our sin and we confess it before the Lord, Scripture is clear to tell us that he is faithful. First John 1 John 1.9, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want to challenge us this morning, even as we've been walking through chapter 5, that if, if we recognize that there is unrepentance in our own heart, if there's selfishness, if there's anything within our own lives, in our spiritual pilgrimage, our walk with Christ, that, that we, are, we are in sin about or hindering the unity of the body, that we would confess that before the Lord. And be restored to the work of God through the church in the midst of the nations, in the midst of this community. Well, lest we paint a negative picture of all who have been blessed with wealth. I want us to look at Nehemiah's example. I think Nehemiah shows us an example of how to honor God with our wealth. In verses 14 through 19, we learn some some different things about Nehemiah. Maybe that we weren't aware of before we got to this point in the text. Nehemiah was a wealthy man. Some might say Nehemiah was filthy rich. He was, he was living on a, with a wartime mentality on a, on a millionaire's budget. And he was calling the people those who were wealthy in the midst of the city, the officials and the nobles, those with that responsibility, he was calling them to see how he was living and using his money to bring God glory in the midst of the nations. And so we learn in verses 14 through 19 that Nehemiah is the governor of the land of Judah. In fact, he was the governor for 12 years. But verse 15 says he wasn't like the other governors. He didn't lay heavy burdens on the people or take daily rations that were privileged to him because of his position. In fact, verses 17 through 19 tell us that his wealth allowed him to provide this massive spread every night, every evening for 12 years for 150 plus men who would gather around a table and eat at the governor's table. And instead of levying heavy taxes on the people, Here's what he did. He supported the work out of his own pocket. Verses 17 and 18 speak of this spread. He had one ox. He had six sheep or choice sheep. He had birds prepared. And every 10 days, he would bring in an abundance of wine and restock the wine the wine table. He would just bring all this wine in. So there's this food. Oxen and birds and sheep and wine. And there's this great feast. Around the, king, around the governor's table each night. And so Nehemiah says. I, I was the one funding this. And then in verse 19. Nehemiah's prayer. Kind of gives away the reasoning. Behind his provision. Verse 19 he says. Remember for my good. O my God. All that I have done for this people. You know what Nehemiah is saying here? God, remember that, that I've had faith and action working together. I've been doing all that you commanded me to do and, and, and everything I could think of to, to prosper the work of your people. He knows the Jews were God's own people and to promote their welfare was to promote the, the cause of God in the midst of his people. And so Nehemiah was a man of great means that was motivated by God's fame among the nations. And he used all that God had entrusted to him to accomplish that end. The question I would ask us to consider this morning is how might we use all that God has entrusted to us to accomplish the mission of Christ in the world? I want to close by making two applications and giving you one illustration of how I think Crosspoint is doing that. First. We're not constrained by the ordinance of. The Torah and dealing with money. And so those laws which were applicable to the people of God. The Jewish community. They're not applicable in that sense to us. But we can learn principles of truth from the Old Testament. Regarding how we use our wealth for advancing God's kingdom. Particularly I think we see this in Proverbs chapter 14 verse 31. Which says whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker but he who is generous to the needy honors him you see god is a generous god and he instructs his people to be generous in the gospel of luke chapters 18 and 19 jesus shares two contrasting examples of men of wealth chapter 18 there's a story of the rich young ruler he comes to jesus and says what what must i do to to follow you, to be in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Right? And the man went away sad because he, he had much. But Jesus didn't give the same instruction to Zacchaeus in chapter 19, the next chapter. Zacchaeus was a, a rich man as well, one who was a tax collector. And he he tells Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 after like like, he tells Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today. And Zacchaeus just uh, of of his own volition says everything I have, I I give half of it to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I give give four times as much back to him. See, it was a transformation of heart. This is the difference. When when God is our God, (laughs) when we worship him and serve him. We see that everything he gives us is to be used for his glory. And I think Nehemiah shows us that. Secondly, Paul calls the Corinthians to the spiritual discipline of giving. As the Lord prospers them. First Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16.1 As God prospers them, they are to give, they are to set aside. And then in 2 Corinthians nine seven, he says to them, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And the reality of how we use our finances as Scripture in the New Testament affirms and sets out for the church is the New, New Testament principle of giving to the Lord is the principle of proportionate giving. Yeah, We, we say 10% is a minimum because we see that modeled in the Old Testament, but, but what we're called to is be generous givers. We're to give freely and cheerfully unto God. I heard testimonies of even members of Crosspoint that say, you know, we started at 10%, but we just incrementally each year, we, we, we continue to increase what we're giving. And, and God has been faithful to us in that. So I want to challenge us, church, to consider how we are using our finances for the glory of God. Thirdly, let me illustrate how Crosspoint, I think, has demonstrated being a giving congregation I want to affirm you this morning by this. I, I don't, this is not to pat us on the back because our standard is not the church down the road standard. Our standard is, is us being responsible before God with what he has entrusted to us and, and given to us. But I just want to share just a, a snapshot of how God has used, over the past five years, how God has used Crosspoint and, and Crosspoint's giving to missions. And to missions specifically for the purpose of making God's glory known in the midst of the nations. We consistently give to the cooperative program, to the Baptist Association of Greater Baton Rouge, to LSU and Nichols, BCM, to Judson Retreat Center, to, Ang- to the Angola Prison Ministry, to Bukeri and to Simbatia, to Peter and Degua, to Lottie Moon, to Annie Armstrong, to Georgia Barnett, to Louisiana Baptist Children's Home, to World Hunger, to Uganda Baptist Seminary, to Zimbabwe, to the uh, orphanage in Zimbabwe, a one-time gift, or to... Kenyan medical supplies, a one-time gift, member benevolence, even Pastor Ramon and all of these, uh, all of these, are, all of these names, uh, minus one or two, have specific line items on our budget each year. And over the last five years, it totals five hundred fifty thousand dollars, five hundred fifty thousand five hundred and seven dollars. Praise God. Praise God, if we look at this big picture, how how Crosspoint has invested money in missions and in, in making Christ's name known among the nations. And if you add to that the work that that Crosspoint entered in when, when, when we sent uh, the church planting team to Grace Mid-City, it jumps up to eight hundred thousand dollars over the last five years that Crosspoint has sent out from the midst of the congregation. Church, I want to infirm us in this. I want to challenge us to continue to give faithfully to God's work through the ministry of Crosspoint. I want to encourage you and challenge you, challenge us to be a church unified in the mission of Christ and proclaiming the message of redemption to our communities and to the world. Let us repent of any ways in which we might be guilty of hindering The unity of the body of Christ, whether that be through spiritual complacency, through a lack of physical service, or even through a lack of financial participation and contribution to advancing God's kingdom. So let us repent. Of not living our lives in the fear of the Lord in that way. And finally, let us heed the challenge this morning to use our wealth to spread the fame of God's name throughout the nations, Will we commit to that this morning? Will we commit to being a people who, like Nehemiah, were zealous for God's name to be made known among the nations and then use all that God has given us to make that happen as he leads us by his spirit? I want to pray this morning for us. And if God is prompting your heart in a specific way, I want to encourage you to respond to him. If God is challenging you in a specific way, I want to encourage you to to hear out what he's challenging you in and commit that to prayer and and covenant with God's people to be in unity for the faith. Let us pray and you respond as the Lord is leading you this morning. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are we come as confessional people, realizing, Lord, that we need you. We need your grace toward us, we need your mercy. And, Father, we long to be your people who are making your name known among the nations and even right here in Baton Rouge from this corner, from this land that you have placed us on. Lord, raise us up, raise Cross Point up as a congregation that is a light in the midst of this community, we pray. And let it all be done for your glory, for your namesake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?